On the Empire Podcast this week, we welcome the two faces of the two faces of January, as star Fugo Mortensen and director Hossein Amini drop by, while Godzilla's Gareth Edwards reduces a pod booth to ash with one swipe of his mighty tail. All that unusual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that isn't in Cannes right now, sitting on a beach, earning 20%. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. As ever, I'm joined by three of my learned, trusted, and you know what? Beloved colleagues. First up is a resident geek queen. Lock up your dragons. It's Helen O'Hara. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Hold on to your subtitles. It's our art house guru, Phil Dissemblian. Hi Chris. Hi, hi. How Phil. are you? I'm very, very good. Good. Last but not least, it's a man who makes us sound good. Well, sound decent. Well, sound mediocre. It's Ali Plum. Hello. Uh, okay, let's start as custom dictates with your questions. You've been sent them in all week. What have you got for us, Bubby? This is from Chris McCourt in Scotland. He doesn't specify where. He says, A friend recently told me that when his kids were old enough to understand, he was going to sit them down and force them to watch Train Spotting to show them the dangers of drug abuse. What films would you show your children to teach them a life lesson or life lessons or educate them in some way, shape or form? He then goes on to say that we should bring the podcast to Scotland. Very interesting idea, Chris. Gosh. I would watch this space if I were you. Uh, can I just say before you guys uh, leap in that uh, when I saw Train Spotting, uh, I took my girlfriend at the time to see it, and after we came out of the cinema, she said, <laughs> That film was great. It really made you want to try heroin. And I kind of went, <laughs> I, nah. Yeah, I was going to say, they're all a bit cool to really yeah. put you off drugs. Well, I worry about that. Yeah, commit and watch, make, make them watch Requiem for a she, Dream, you'd think. Oh. She wasn't my girlfriend for very much longer. <laughs> That's a great because comment. she dumped me. Oh, she didn't become a heroin addict or something. Okay, well, she ne- who knows? Who knows? She remain, she'll remain nameless. She had a name at the time, she probably still has a name. But I'm not going to say it. Okay, yeah, good. Just in case. It's also a film about the perils of bleaching your hair <laughs> two months before <laughs> Trainspotting comes out for for the most inane of reasons. Did you? Yeah. No way. Yeah. We got invited to a, like, it was at uni, got invited to like a flat party, a Hollywood party. And for some reason, I decided to go super mainstream and went as Sean Bean from When Saturday Comes. <laughs> <laughs> did you have a 100% blade tattooed on your arm? I didn't go as far as that, but I did have my hair dyed, so I looked a bit like... I looked like Orville's brother. Twin brother. Why did you go as... I don't know. You should have gone as Sharpie. I should have gone as Sharpie. I think this might have been pre-Sharpie, even. There was, was a long time ago. before Sharpie. Yeah, I know. It was a long time ago. <laughs> it's actually at university before the Peninsula War itself. Ah, OK. So, um, yeah, it was a while back. And obviously, train spotting came out, and then I looked like a double doofus. Like I was doing it to try and be sick boy. But actually, I wanted to go, I'm trying to be Sean Bean, not Johnny Lee Miller. Helen, what life lessons would you impart to your fictional kids? To my fictional kids. I actually genuinely remember watching The Contender, the one with Joan Allen and Jeff Bridges, and thinking, I wish I had a daughter so I could show her this and go, yes, that, that's what you want to be doing. You want to be like her, do that. Mm. Um, And I felt the same way when I saw the Dixie Chicks documentary, weirdly, Shut Up and Sing, which is the same kind of just... Women completely refusing to bow to the patriarchy, man. Yeah. Power. Um. <laughs> Good to see you're not continuing a variation of the theme. Well, no, that genuinely, that is the genuine answer to this question. That's, I mean, there are, there are many other films that have, if I had kids, I would absolutely 100% make them mm. watch. Mm. But those are the two where I, I remember actively wishing that I already had kids mm. so I could show them to them. All films are educational in a way, aren't they? Yes. Let's move on then. Uh, Chris McCourt thank you for the question maybe we'll see you in Scotland sometime maybe so Um, simple yes yes we're coming to Scotland Uh, details will be announced very very soon Uh, right Uh, this question comes from Ian Freer of Walthamstow 
No. Same Ian Freer who works for Empire Magazine. Yes, it is, because he said this he said this out loud in the office the other day, and we said, it's such a good question, please send it into the podcast. He said, and I quote, if you could go on set of any film or movie history, what would it be? Mine would be Apocalypse Now or Asian Jugs 4. I felt the franchise really tailed off after three. I, I couldn't comment on that one. It's a pottery film, Mel. Of course it is. Okay. So, what would you go on and why? I would want to go on something really, really large scale, crazy, beautiful, awesome looking. You'd like to go on crazy beautiful? I'd like to go on crazy beautiful. No, <laughs> I would like to go on something something that I could not have gone on. I mean, I w- I've been lucky enough to be on set of, you know, stuff like Harry Potter. I was on set of 300, which is crazy beautiful in a whole other way. You know, so I'd, I'd rather go to something impossible like Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, Cleopatra. Yeah, something absolutely oh, yeah. epic. Something mm. that's like, oh, this is movie making. Heaven's Gate. Heaven- <laughs> Maybe Seriously, not. Heaven's Gate. Gandhi, though, or, uh, or uh, um, War and Peace, or something just huge and massive in scale. That mm. would be cool. I'd like to go on something that was like famously tempestuous, like a Heaven's Gate or, mm. a, or an Ishtar or uh, one of the, uh, you know, Herzog, Klaus Kinski films. Mm. Fitzcarraldo. Fitzcarraldo would be oh. pretty awesome. Yeah, although I'm terrified of of uh, heights and jungles and, and stinging <laughs> things, so probably not the best film for me, but well, it'd be amazing. On the, on the contentious thing, I think Cleopatra would be good that way because you've got, uh, that's when, you know, Burton and Taylor obviously began their affair. Mm. And one of the very first set visits I did for Empire was, uh, was to Oliver Twist, the Roman Polanski Oliver Twist, but the set publicist there the unit publicist there was a legend in the industry who sadly passed away now called Jeff Freeman and he had gotten his first job on Cleopatra and he was sitting on Oliver Twist which was a little bit boring with all due respect telling me about being the, the unit publicist on set of Cleopatra and trying to keep this affair between these two global megastars secret and the pair of Good them job. yeah <laughs> but apparently you know their their villas were like 3 miles apart on the villa on the via appia and the entire width of the uh, the, the entire length of the road between those two villas was just lined with these little tents with paparazzi <laughs> living in these tents hoping to get cars going between the villas and get a, a shot of the two um Jeff talked about coming into work one morning into his office and finding Richard Burton asleep, sort of drunken stupor on his desk, just, you know, unable to kind of cope with all the craziness, completely madly in love with Taylor, suffering guilt because he was married, obviously, to somebody else and and just, you know, in a complete mess. And, and, you know, Freeman was trying to sort of pick up the pieces so that's pretty cool that's pretty that's a pretty cool set to be on I'm just saying I'm suddenly feeling a bit stupid because you know Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure oh that'd that's be good though great what I want to be the moment I want to be on set for is when Napoleon etches a one before his 43 uh, before he goes bowling <laughs> and he <laughs> look to the camera it's so funny and there's a great piece that our very own Nick DeSemlin has done, and it's on the website, which is Alex Winter talking through the characters that, that, that they meet and, and the actors behind them and the story of each one. So I, I genuinely would have loved to do that. Also, uh, Chef recently is this great film we'll be talking about in a couple of weeks' time, or rather quite a few weeks' time. Uh, no, John, just, yeah. Is it a couple of weeks? Uh, no, you're right. It's June 27th. Yeah, exactly. It's a while away. But mm. that's about food and lots of it and lots and lots more of it, and the food all looks amazing. Do not go and see that film hungry. Yeah. So I would love to have been on that set just for, for purely eating Cuban food reasons. And finally, I think my real answer would be The Man with the Golden Gun so I could be on set in the island in Thailand because that was before before The Man with the Golden Gun, that place which is called Kaofing Can, which I've not pronounced correctly, 
was pretty much untouched. It wasn't mm. known as a tourist attraction. And now, since it's become James Bond Island, mm. everyone goes there. And there is obviously a trail of destruction in the wake of all the tourists who go there. Quick quiz. What is the name of the weapon? Not the golden gun, but what is the name of the weapon in The Man with the Golden Gun? Oh, the thing he wants to destroy the world with. Correct. Knickknacks, make a, make a laser beam. <laughs> the Structor. It's the Solex Agitator. <laughs> what a fantastic name. And finally, what is the first name of Scaramanga? Jeff. Lucius. Bob. I do know this. Derek. I do know this. It's Francisco. Oh, of course it is. Hereby ends <clears throat> the quiz. But anyway, Cow Thing Can in Thailand would definitely definitely be where i'd go do you remember when Britt eklund came on the podcast she told some good she said that some that sounded like a really fun sad yeah mm-hmm. cubby broccoli would make big spaghetti and they'd all get down and and didn't christopher lee used to opera sing and wake roger moore up with his warbling in the morning because he'd get up and and exercise his famous vocal cords i would love to hear that it'd be pretty good to be woken up by i'd love to eat dracula singing <laughs> <laughs> wake up it's a beautiful morning or something you're not gonna believe this jeff freeman Helen's friend from Oliver Twist and Cleopatra was unipublicist on The Man with the Golden Gun. Shut your mouth. Oh yeah, he did most of the Bond films. What a lucky swine. That's amazing. I was just looking up to see what what other films he did. He did loads of the Bonds, Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, The Eagle Has Landed. No way! Oh my God! Scum. Oh my God, he did Scum. Oh God, the set of Scum. I would love to be on the set of Scum. (laughs) Think big. Quadrophenia. Oh my God. Quadrophenia. He was on Omen 3. Oh wow. What a legend. Did he write a book? Well, Did he write a book? No, he always said uh, he, he felt it was sort of against his code. Oh, come on. At least on. that's what he told us. In 1981 were... alone, he did The Omen 3, Gregory's Girl, and dreadful snake movie Venom um, with Klaus Kinski. <laughs> I mean, this is just weird. What an amazing, so amazing career. Wow. Publicists are fascinating. Fascinating. I was on, um, I was on a, a major film, I cannot tell you, uh, recently uh, because I signed lots of scary non-disclosure agreements but I was talking to um, some interviewing one of the members of the, the one of the members of the large ensemble cast <laughs> and uh, you, you, don't you stick your tongue out of me O'Hara um, and uh, the publicist we, we got talking about Armageddon somehow it turned out it was a publicist you know publicist very first movie was Armageddon and but he has stories from that that would turn your hair white <laughs> as well so uh, yeah I'd love to see a book about that publicist should write books they yeah. should just write books. Once they get to the end of the career and they're just done, they have all the stories, they know all the secrets, they know where all the bodies are buried, sometimes literally, and they should just go for it, I think. But anyway, the question was, any set, any film, movie history, Phil, I don't think you've answered it. Um, well, I was going to say Fritz Crowder as well, because Klaus Kinski and Werner Herzog's famous, famously amicable on-set <laughs> relationship, mm. the Les Blank documentary makes it seem like absolute carnage I'd also like to be the guy that just stands there and goes no you want to move the boat up the hill that way dude <laughs> what are you doing no um, the, the, the just so much stuff in that film I mean obviously they recast it yeah. um, Jason Robarts didn't it originally Mick Jagger was going to be involved um, it's just a massively epic and painful story you've just you've just made me think I mean I've, I've got so many this is a question you could just, we could talk about this for hours because you could obviously be me being me I'd love to be on set of Evil Dead 2 Event Horizon blah 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 blah. but my god can you imagine being on set of Once Upon a Time in the West for the scene where where uh, Bronson arrives at the very very beginning that would have been just amazing that would have been amazing but you know honestly my answer probably would be Jaws because I think that has 
all the elements we're talking about. It was a tempestuous shoot. It ran over schedule horrendously. There were rewrites on set. There was a shark that didn't work. There was a director who was a bit of a greenhorn. And obviously one of the greatest movies ever made. It came out as a result. And I would just love to have been on set for the for the scenes at the end on the Orca when it's just the three of them just shooting the fat. And I guess more specifically for Robert Shaw's Indianapolis speech. That would have been amazing. Well, the other thing that it has is obviously Robert Shaw had a torrid love affair with Bruce. <laughs> and going to and from each other's trailers, it was pretty... Um, Jeff Freeman tried to hush it up. Yeah, and it's like... It wasn't oh, even on the movie, but I've got to hush this up, guys. Bruce isn't working. Some of it's broken. All right, this is a cracking question from Twitter. Uh, this is from at Comics505, who asks, if you could have any actor or actress <laughs> read you a dirty story or possibly slash fiction, I don't really know, podcast slash fiction, who knows, based only on their voice now, based only on their voice, which actor or actress would you choose? Ali, you have your hand up. It's a toss-up between Gilbert Gottfried and Charlie Day. Their voices just, like, make me... I make me de-evolve as a human. Emma Stone would be my answer. I think that's the right answer. I think we're all done with this question. <laughs> Should we move on? No. Oh, Helen has a question. Mm. Helen has a, a, a point to make. I have some male voices. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, I, I, I've got a sort of a top five, probably. You've been thinking about this question quite a lot. All right. At number five. At number five, I'm going to say Brad Pitt, because I saw a film of his in Spanish and was all like, who's this handsome but unsexy man? Um, and it turned out it was because his voice wasn't his voice. Um, was, that, was that Sinbad? Uh, no, it was an entrevista con el vampiro, I believe. Ah, listen uh, to the fall. Yeah. <laughs> and number four, speaking, staying on the Spanish theme, Javier Bardem. Javier Bardem. Um, did a phone with him once, it was fun. Uh, <laughs> number three, Vin Diesel, because the opening voiceover of, of uh, Pitch Black I actually always thought was a bit nice. Uh, number f- <laughs> two, Sam Elliott. Not only a magnificent moustache, but also yes. a magnificent voice. Mm. Yes. And number one, with a bullet... Nick Offerman Ron Swanson yeah. yeah I for one am surprised not to Good hear choice. Peter Laurie's name oh. on that list if you, he does that right now you're in so much trouble it's going to sound oh, a lot no. like Gilbert Gottfried I think I don't think I've done this on the podcast before hello Helen Helen doesn't like it when I do the Peter Laurie voice she puts her fingers in her ears and gets all kind of freaked out Helen why are you doing it would you not like me to read you something dirty <laughs> It sounds a little bit like uh, Doctor Evil. I tell you the thing with the, the Peter Laurie voice I do is actually the uh, the voice of the uh, I want to say rat from Peter Jackson's Meet the Feebles, mm. who uh, says, and I quote, "Oh, I'd love to give her a taste of the old pork sword," uh, which I wish this one. And this is a man who then when they make on uh, make uh, the Hobbit. <laughs> so there you go. If you haven't seen Meet the Feebles, do check it out. Helen, I apologise. Oh. 111 podcasts in I have never uncorked that voice on the podcast my fault oh, I'm so, oh, I just, I'm also not. Liam Neeson needs to be mentioned <laughs> Alec Baldwin Jodie Foster <laughs> I think Jodie Foster Morgan Jody Freeman Foster, really? yeah Scott. I think there's something to that and yeah. and obviously we need to mention Kathleen Turner and Who Framed Roger Rabbit yes exactly yeah. I wrote down uh, Kathleen Turner as Jessica Rabbit uh, Chris Tucker Joe Pesci Rosie Perez <laughs> uh, these are people who <laughs> 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 Joe Pesci, Rosie Perez, <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried and Charlie Day. These are the characters in my dirty story <laughs> as well. None of you mentioned Scarlett Johansson after her just, as well. I just thought it was a little bit, you know, too obvious. Okay. Yeah. I mean, she's awesome. Sure. Kevin Spacey. She's got a sort of voice you can feel in your hip pocket. 
Anyway. That's mm. a quote from the Naked Gun. I know. <laughs> okay. Well, it's actually a paraphrase. Uh, but yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, here's how you get in touch Don't. with us. Stop it. Here's how you get in touch with us. Uh, we are on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Why does that voice freak you out so much? I just, I can't, I can't be having with it. I just, I, no. <laughs> Nails down a blackboard, that voice. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're on Twitter as at Emperor Magazine. Please use the hashtag Emperor Podcast, otherwise we won't see it. Uh, we're on Facebook, Empire Magazine. Uh, and we are on email, of course, podcast at Empire Online. Time now for our first interview. The Two Faces of January is a sweaty and dense thriller based on Patricia Highsmith's novel and sees Figo Mortensen back on the big screen in fine form as a sweaty and dense con man. He popped into the pod booth earlier this week with the film's writer-director, Hossein Amini. And they were talking to Phil and in an Empire podcast first, and I certainly didn't think we'd ever hear it because I wasn't even sure he knew how the radio worked, let alone podcasts. Empire's executive editor, Ian Nathan, stepped into this booth for the very first time. Okay, you guys, just to set the scene for this interview, Patricia Highsmith, who wrote The Two Faces of January, was previously uh, probably best known for writing such books as The Talented Mr. Ripley, adapted as Plein Soleil, and of course by Anthony Minghella, and Strangers on a Train, adapted famously by Alfred Hitchcock. The Two Faces of January is a story of a couple who travel on holiday in 1962 to Athens, where they fall in with a gadabout uh, con man played by Oscar Isaac, and all manner of chaos ensues. Hossi Mamini, who adapted this one, is well known for his adaptations of Henry James's The Wings of the Dove, Oscar nominated for that, and most recently Drive, Snow White and the Huntsman, and 47 Ronin. If you're wondering, Montesquieu was an 18th century philosopher. Enjoy. We are very thrilled to be joined in the Empire podcast this week by um, Hossein Amini and Vigo Mortensen here to talk about The Two Faces of January, Hoss's adaptation of the Patricia Highsmith novel, which is a sort of fantastic, very classical piece of filmmaking that we thoroughly enjoyed. I understand that you first met, I think, 2010 at Vigo's house in Madrid. What's Vigo's hospitality like? Well, this is the, I think I, 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 was, I was off... Um, when I was told he was interested in the script and wanted to meet, I went off to Madrid to see him. And my experience of going I offered to, meet... to go to England, but he said he had reasons to go to Madrid. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> but, I'll let um, him tell you that or not. <laughs> but we were... Um, so I turned up expecting to be kept waiting for four days and, and um, to have the venue changed repeatedly in sort of typical movie star fashion. Um, but Vigo phones, make sure I'm in, you know, in the hotel and everything's fine sort of comes over and walks to the hotel and then takes me out for dinner and I've sort of got just enough money to pay for him but he often takes <laughs> me out for dinner and, 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 and was so gracious about the whole meeting and, and I was very nervous because I was in a way even though he didn't make it feel like an audition it was a sort of audition but by the end of it we chatted for hours and, and by the end of it he said well good luck Godspeed hope you get the money oh and you did, obviously. Yeah. And here we are. I mean, it helped having him. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> no, but even so, I mean, it took a little while. Uh, I, I have to say that that conversation, which was a dinner that went on for hours and, you know, kind of closing the place sort of dinner, I really liked his, what he was thinking about since he'd not made a movie as a director, you know. Um, it's hard to know what you're going to do, you know. He's written really good screenplays. Other people have directed them. What would he have done with them, you know? And his ideas for this were subtle, were really intelligent, and that's a question of whether you can execute that. But because it is a an old-school kind of, uh, you know, a classic kind of movie story, they don't make that many of those 
nowadays, and for a first-time director to want to make one of those, it did take a little while. It took us, what, the better part of three years? Yeah, it took another three, pretty much two or three years after that. To get well. the money and the cast together and, you know. If you think about the Ripley stories, it's very clear he's a, he's a psychopath. Yeah. yeah. Well, and this isn't a story of psychopaths. They're all very human, you know. And very They're unlucky, dark, yeah. in a way. That, 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 it's, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's, I mean, with, with, with Ripley, you sort of take a sort of almost delicious delight in watching this clever psychopath at work. And I think what I loved about this one, it was, it was you know, three characters that I recognise. I don't know what it says about me, but I, I sort of felt I understood each of them. And, and really how, through a combination of bad luck and greed, they fall into, you know, these terrible kind of crimes and things. And that it is unusual because they're, they're, they're normal people. They're, they're, not, they're not heightened mm. sort of psychopaths or bad and it's And it's not just the men. You know, some people go, well, these two men have that going on, but what about her? In reality, all three characters have done things. She, by being where she is, being with this man, Chester... All of them are expressing something that's very human. They're not happy with what they have. You know, if it was just a question, I think it was Montesquieu who talked about that. Being happy is a relatively simple and straightforward thing. The problem is that people want to be happier than other people. And that's very tricky because we tend to think that people are happier than they really are. So it's kind of a losing proposition. And all three of them are engaged in that. She is too. It's like, well, I wanted to be here, I thought, because I wanted A, B, and C, luxury, travel, exposed to this, man's charming, whatever. Chester wants, God knows why, but he wants more than what he has, and Rydell wants more than he has. And they all get more than they bargained for. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, that is definitely our first ever reference to Montesquieu on the Empire podcast. <laughs> is he in Star Wars? <laughs> he should be. <laughs> um, I'm interested. I know that, Hoss, that you, that you came across this book when you were at university and you revisited it regularly. And I guess its layers have kind of opened themselves up to you down the years. Um, so in a sense, it's been a, the cliche passion project. But I wondered for you, Vigo, have you, have you read books and thought and, and seen it in the same way and thought that's a character that I could really see on the screen. Was there has there been a recent example of that for you? For um, instance, the I mean to put that more specifically, the road. Probably the script came before the book, did it? Or I had read the book before. Uh, like and how did you have that people, feeling? And I thought this. Well, I remember thinking about it. I read it. Well, it was just very intense, very moving. And when you're reading the book, because his particular the, the punctuation that he uses in that book, that sort of it takes a while at least for me as a reader, to sort of get used to that. And then the story itself, though, is so lean and so emotionally powerful that I did think about it as a movie. But I, I remember thinking it would be very difficult to make a movie of this that, that would have a, you know, that would move forward in a way that would be satisfying dramatically for an audience. And I think that, that John Hillcote actually did, did a good job with that. Very difficult, uh, but he pulled it off. But, yeah, no, I don't... I probably should, in terms of career or something, have, well, there's these books, and I'll get the rights to them if I can, <laughs> and there are these plays, and I should do these Shakespeare parts, and I should work with these directors. I don't really, I kind of just read what's, what I find, what comes to me, and there's always something there, and uh, you'd never know. I mean, I, I would have, four years ago, if you said to me, or five years ago, you're going to be doing, you're going to be playing Chester McFarland, I would have. I would have thought, well, it's not impossible, but it doesn't sound like something I'd be right for, or I don't see that coming along. You don't see scripts like that, you know, and then, then you read one. So you don't know. I mean, last year I did a movie where I spoke languages I didn't know in a place I didn't expect to be shooting. It's There's plenty of surprises, plenty of things to look at without trying to 
for my taste anyway, micromanage it and plan too far ahead. Uh, it probably would be good to set a couple things aside. I have something I, I have been writing a screenplay from, but it's I don't know if it'll ever be made. You know, I don't really have a game plan in that sense. No. I'm amazed there are languages that you don't speak if you go, to be honest, <laughs> <laughs> including Elvish, Elvish. <laughs> and many others. Can I, can I ask, Hoss, um, were there films you, you looked at, um, you know, uh, Hitchcock, you know, other classics you looked at just to kind of inspire you for this film? Well, the, the one I looked at the most was probably um, Purple Noon, uh, Plan Soleil, which is the French version of yeah. Talented Mr. Ripley. And, and what I loved about it was, was, obviously it was shot in the same period we were we were making the film that it was that our film was set um but there was something quite messy about it from you know it started off with quite clean classical moves and then went into handheld shots and and it kept changing and and it had a sort of messiness which i loved and i, I felt it, there was something about the way as the story progressed that things just got more intense and real the camera moves stopped being classical and became slightly more handheld and jerky and stuff like that and 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 it sort of fitted our story quite well i sort of thought there was that that idea of that you start off with this beautiful postcard perfect sort of world of athens and then as you you know as the characters gradually disintegrate you start to sort of you go into crete which is much harsher mountainous landscape and dust and and dirt and then finally there's sort of very film noir istanbul um so that that film I watched a lot. I did watch some Hitchcock, but I tried not to watch too much because I think his influence is so strong yeah, that you end yeah. up sort of copying. Mm. But, I but there were you emails and conversations. We had a lot of we had a lot of film lots references, of film noir lots of film noir stuff yeah. we watched, and then were you I, kind I, of sending each other tips? Then you go, well, we had you've a got to watch this one. So we, were, we were emailing quite yeah. a lot, and I th I think it's such an incredibly useful process. And I think you know, I mean, Vigo was almost like a partner on this film, so so we were constantly the script evolved through those discussions and Chester's character evolved and you know and, and even how and but where he, we were you did that film. with each of the actors which was really yeah great. And, a lot and of directors was, don't was, either out of not it doesn't occur to them or more likely it's protecting their position or something but your interaction with oscar with kirsten with me and even meeting a month or more before we started shooting all of us in london and you know i mean there's something it's not only pretty modest for someone who writes the script and writes a really good script uh, but it's also very smart it's very practical because you you got to work with each of the of the actors and then you went away and changed something so that by the time we started shooting it was a much leaner script and you kept doing that during the shoot which was really You're unusual most writer directors are I don't no 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 that's the way I wrote it and and he would be the first one a lot of times to say you know, I, I'm listening to you guys do the run-through, and if you don't mind, I'd like to try it without that paragraph because I think we don't need it. Mm. As elegant as it yeah. is, it's not... That's, you know, and that's, that's smart. Not a lot of directors who even experienced ones who have written the script are going to do that, are going to have them, a mind open enough. B Billy Wilder had these ten uh, tips for screenwriting, and one of them was let the audience add up two and two to make four and they'll love you for it and I, th your film really does that and the script really does that respects um, the audience it respects the audience and lets you you know show don't tell but it, he also said that he he found that writing a script and then passing on to someone else to direct was a bit like making the bed and then watching someone else go and have a nice lie down and a nap uh, do you feel that way? no I, I don't because um, I, I've you know been privileged to work with some great directors and I, I, th I think they do you know um, like for example on on, on drive I'd sort of written it 
um, like a Western. It was lean and it was sort of stealing off the samurai, the Melville film and Shane and all these things. But, but there was a fairy tale David Lynch aspect that Nicholas brought to it, which I thought completely heightened the movie. And I, I think that sometimes... It's a, I think the collaboration is so important. I, th I think, and and that's what I love about you know, as as, as going back to what Vigo was saying about writing is is, I selfishly just wanted to make the script better. Mm -hmm. And 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 when you have smart people and and uh, and people who think about their part and 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 you know have have, in a way, thought about it much harder than you have as a screenwriter. We have to deal with ten or twelve parts. Mm -hmm. There's so much you can get. And I was. I mean, I wanted as much time as I could get with them, and and Vigo was very generous with his time, as with the other two actors, and 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 you know, with with Kirsten, I worked very closely with her. With Oscar, I went and spent two days with him in New York, and and all of those things were really so I could write a better script. Yeah, well, it wasn't you know that I was I, you know, wanted to, to <laughs> free meals in Madrid. That was nice too, but I think I think it's it's. And about, what were your reasons for going to Madrid? You know, <laughs> no, sixty-eight times. That surprised you about directing. I mean, you've been around <laughs> sets, but you've never actually directed. What what surprised you the most? I think that surprised me the most. I had this I had this notion that what you do is um, between takes you go and you talk to the actors and you have a really long discussion and you'd <laughs> say, well, discuss the part and analyze. And what I found is. Is sometimes you just have to get out of the way um, because you've got three. I had three fantastic actors, and they need to explore. They need to find their own rhythm, and I think you can mess with that if you over talk. And and I felt quite often when I was sort of there wasn't something right in a take. It was how do I get a note across in the most concise way possible, um, so it doesn't always interfere with you know what they do brilliantly and I think I think when do you start to overthink it and, and mm -hmm. um, this is more a question I guess to Vigo's is is I suspect it becomes something some of that spontaneity goes and I think you can over talk as a director that's that's so I, I, I learned to shut up and stay out of the way quite often weren't you the first film to shoot on actually inside the Acropolis we were, I think they'd shot before but 20 years ago, 20 years um, ago. I think Coppola had shot um, did they let them inside the Parthenon I think that was the last time they'd done right. it and then yeah. um, I mean I watched a couple of Greek films from the yeah. 60s where they'd shot there but um, but we were very lucky but we only had two days to film there and we weren't allowed to stop no. tourists but I was surprised how incredibly you know I think that's the nice thing about people you know when they see film sets just somehow respected it's yeah. almost like very there was only one or two people who said I came here to look at this shit and I'm gonna look at it I don't care what the fuck you're doing <laughs> <laughs> no, there was, there was. they weren't American <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you've got no annual leave left this is def this film is definitely the next best thing I think in terms of Having a bit of a bit of a holiday, <laughs> a bit of a travel. You don't want to beautiful. run into Chester, though. No, avoid, <laughs> avoid men in exactly, wallet. You know, keep your wallet in, in your front pocket. Yeah, avoid <laughs> men in linen suits. Um, I, there's obviously a camaraderie builds up, and especially with a small ensemble, a small cast like this. Um, I don't know if you saw Vigo's final day on Lord of the Rings. There was a hacker and there was headbutting. I've heard about this. Did yeah. you do some sort of Greek local dance for <laughs> no, him? Or? But if I, I, only, I only found out that story yesterday. But uh, oh, really? Had I known? So no headbutt yet. <laughs> <laughs> Two Faces of January is out today. Um, Vigo and Hoss, thank you so much for coming thank to talk so to us about us. it. Much appreciated. Very nice to see you. Time now for some lovely movie news. What's in the tea leaves this week for Hollywood? Who wants to start? Okay, well, there's a couple of very big stories about very big films this week. Uh, first up, uh, probably more exci most excitingly, uh, is the fact that Zack Snyder released a picture online of his Batmobile. Now, he told us that was coming. What he didn't say was that alongside his new Batmobile would be his new Batman. Uh, and so our first look at Ben Affleck in the suit 
as Batman. Largely positive reactions, I think, online to this, which is no yeah. mean feat for for a new bat anything because te- people tend to, to tear it to shreds. Mm-hmm. Basically, people seem to sort of welcome the fact that it seems like a little bit of a hybrid of the sort of the Chris Nolan vaguely believable look and the sort of, you know, high-tech looking uh, fabrics and so on. But it's also kind of a throwback. If you look at the neck and the cowl and especially the way the cape is attached, yeah. that's actually pretty old school. Um, it's quite close to Frank Miller's Dark Knight Return. It's very uh, close returns. to it. Uh, if we see the colour scheme, I yeah. think we'll see just how close it is. I've yes. seen some colourised versions where people have been filling it in themselves and some people have gone for the, the classic blue and grey, Adam Westy kind of thing. I think they should just only just kept the Adam West costume. <laughs> Could Ben Affleck and that and see, we'll see what happens. Well, other people have gone for this sort of Arkham Asylum, yeah. sort of gunmetal grey with some black stuff. It looks pretty badass, I have to say. Um, you know, and... Um, you know, it's an interesting look for the Stig, but uh, you know, but I think I think it looks good. Think small looks ears. Good. Some people are calling him Fat Man, which well, you know, is a little harsh. I think if, if that's fat, then yeah. you know, a, a lot of people are going to be wondering why their fat looks so different because it looks to me like Ben Affleck has hit the gym in a major, major way. Oh, he certainly he's, has, but there's certainly he's a, extremely a, bulky. There's a bulkiness. To yeah, him. but but it doesn't look like fat bulkiness. I think it looks like it, he actually again he looks like the, the Frank Miller drawings or the Frank Miller. Dark Knight Returns, who who's a big, big, muscly Batman. I suppose he has to be if he's going to be in any way rivaling not only Henry Cavill, who's not a small human being, mm. but also playing Superman, possibly one of the most powerful in existence. I like the front of the Batmobile. Not to go on about this too much. I know it's just mm. a car and a man. But uh, the <laughs> when you boil it down to that, well, what are we doing here? What are we Every doing here? Just, should we leave? We're just talking about cars and men and people and Crap. stuff. Shit. We should leave. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, yeah, no, I like how the front kind of has that extended, long, Burton-y Batman thing, but the back has the tumbler wheels. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, if someone bought that for me, <laughs> I would drive it. I've been on your road, though. Where would you park it? Well, with those back wheels, I could pretty much <laughs> make anything Wherever the like hell I want, <laughs> yeah. The the bat suit seems to have a weathered, scratched, beaten up look. Like he's been in a lot of fights. That's one thing they've been saying all along. That this would be a Batman who's a seasoned campaigner. By the time the, the movie begins, that he's been going for many years, uh, which is, I guess, one of the reasons they cast someone in his forties as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was this wonderful speculation because the, the, the people were saying they could see a Joker face in the in the in the car, hmm. the shadows of the car, the way the smoke was, it bounced up on the wheel rims and. People said so was a Joker face. I don't think they're going to go any, anywhere near a Joker for a while. I think the, the shadow of Heath Ledger is too long. But uh, mm. but uh, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. You know, we, we need to see it in color. Need to see it moving. And more importantly for me, with this Affleck Batman, need to hear the voice. Voice is huge for me. I still think he's too high pitched. So you think Nick Off- Offerman should probably dub him? It's interesting, actually, to me, because I, I genuinely do think that Dark Knight Returns has been a model for this suit. And also, of course, that's what Snyder read out. He read out a passage of the book when he was I- introducing this thing at Comic-Con. And I do wonder how, you know, how much of a playbook that kind of is for him, because he is a huge comic book nerd. I mean, he, he loves this stuff. He knows this stuff. Mm. And I wonder, you know, if it's going to be something vaguely close to that in the end. He said it wasn't going to be an adaptation of that, but, you know, he's certainly trying to lift the same tone. There have been rumours online as well that um, it's not the only bad suit we'll see in the film. Uh, that whenever he goes to fight Superman, as the plot will dictate they do at some point, uh, he'll have a souped-up, armoured version. Because otherwise, it, you know, as great as Batman is, it ain't a fair fight. So, you know, I, I like it. Cautious thumbs up. You know, we have been slightly critical of that movie on the podcast. There's still a sense that they're making it up as they go along. But... This is fine. This is good. 
Three cheers. Hooray. Hooray. Which is a recommendation. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone have a pack of crisps and sit down. You've had a long day. Uh, I'd like to talk about John Hurt. You know John Hurt. I love him. Excellent Mm -hmm. actor. Really charismatic presence. Elephant man. Top bloke. Good beard. (laughs) What a lovely man. I wouldn't mind him reading me a story. Anyway, so yes, he has been not officially announced or actually, you know, signed on the dotted line situation Mm -hmm. at all. That he has been mooted as Don Quixote for Terry Gilliam's long gestating project. There's another great set to be on. There, well, yeah, quite a yeah. Which set do you want? This upcoming one or the one that went? The or? one with the with the with the jets and the chaos. Yeah. Just to give Terry a hug. That'd be nice. Give him a nice big hug. But yeah, so I just feel like it's a really great fit. What a great idea. Mm. Uh, apparently, you know, actual shooting of the film has been pushed back to late. 2015 and Terry's a very busy man this year uh, so that makes sense so here's to that I just think it's a great idea and I think it's an inspired piece of casting and I feel like he will fit into Terry Gilliam's aesthetic rather well absolutely yeah he's been he's played a role similar to that recently I'm trying to remember off the top of my head what it is it's like the sort of cat weaselly um, vibe he's kind of Spanish cat weasel isn't he Don Quixote Spanish cat weasel. Spanish cat weasel. It's one of the great works of literature in the Western world, and you're calling it a cat weasel. I don't think I'm denigrating it by comparing it with cat weasel. It's one of the great works of TV, children's TV. I prefer the cartoon. Of the 80s. Okay. Well, that's put me in my box, hasn't it? (laughs) Um, I was just... mm, 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 I'm just trying to look for you. Don't care. I'm trying to look for you what, what else he's done recently. Yeah. It reminds you, uh, me of Don Quixote. I've got a vision of him playing uh, sort of... It reminds Only me. Lovers Left Alive where he was Marlowe, uh, Snowpiercer, uh, Merlin, uh, Hollow Crown, Sightseers... Uh, Sightseers? Sightseers? Narrator. Is he? Mm. Narrator. Uh, Immortals, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, uh, Ollivander and Harry Potter, Melancholi- Melancholia, mm. uh, mm. Harry Potter, Brighton Rock. Yeah, Bright- sorry. No, it doesn't matter. matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, all this reminds me of Adam Buxton's inspired joke, which is they should make a hot water bottle in the shape of a donkey and call it Donkey Hottie. <laughs> <laughs> He's not wrong. That's a good idea. We have now official word that Roberto Orsi is in uh, talks, hammering out a deal to direct the third Star Trek film of the modern era, taking over, of course, from J.J. Abrams, who's gone off to do Star Wars. Now Orsi has involved in writing the last two he's the one that they all described as having goblin blood or sorry as having green blood um because he's such a big fan of the franchise so so the word has it um and uh, and yeah he has recently broken up his partnership with alex kurtzman completely amicably and um, they're not writing together anymore kurtzman's also going off to direct so yes this has been met with i think it's fair to say consternation mm-hmm. from uh, star trek fans mm-hmm. um we had Orsi in the podcast. He's a very, very nice guy. He does know his stuff. Um, but he hasn't directed before. And he's been given... At all. At all. Even on any of the shows that he's run. Not a single frame. And he's being anything. given the keys to a very large kingdom. He has. Uh, yeah, it's, this is interesting. Um, I, I feel like the J.J. Abrams movies are full of craft and they're very well made, if that makes any sense. And that's part of a big reason why I like them, is that they have this established, confident, impactful, grown-up tone where I feel like I'm in safe hands. I don't want to not feel like I'm in safe hands, but anyway. On the other hand, he does come at it with you know an established sort of aesthetic for the films. He's got an established cast who are obviously very good. These are both, you know, marks in anyone's favour going into that film. With whom he has a rapport. With whom well. he has a rapport and a relationship already. Yeah. 
I don't know. It is uh, Devin Faranchi, who writes for Badass Digest, who runs Badass Digest, in fact, uh, is a uh, confirmed Orsi hater. And if you go on to Badass Digest, loath though I am to recommend other film websites, uh, and seek out Devin's piece about Roberto Orsi getting the Star Trek 3 gig, it's very funny. Because he hates the guy. Proper hates the guy. And his political opinions, which are a tad controversial, shall we say? So I don't know. It's gonna it's gonna be interesting. There's obviously, Star Trek fans who've and you know who voted Star Trek into Darkness, the worst Star Trek film of them all. Uh, he had a bit of a run in with them on a on a message board mm. uh, shortly after the film came out, where he basically told them to uh, go <laughs> go forth and multiply, and uh, you know that there was a reason why he was writing the scripts and they weren't, and, and so on and so forth. So. <laughs> You know, I do wonder if this is, you know, if you alienate half your fan base before you start. <laughs> I think some is of them that would the quite like to be turned into aliens. That's it? the ultimate dick move, isn't it? To go, <laughs> I'm writing. That's why you're there and I'm here. I mean, Having honestly, said that, though, we've just talked about Ben Affleck as Batman. You know, whenever he was first cast, the fanboys did what they did. And they, they you know, they got into an you know, agitated state and they... Started getting the pitchforks out, and they started. Mm. You know, yeah, but crucially, Castle. Ben Affleck didn't say that's why I've got no, Oscars but, and you're a maggot. I but mean, they can be turned around, as the the, mm. the shot of uh, Ben Affleck in the in the bat suit has done for a lot of Batman fans. Uh, and so you never know if if the word on Star Trek Three comes out and the trailers look good, and, and who knows? But uh, it is certainly a very interesting choice. Yes. Should we leave that there? I think so. I'll leave it there. Uh, okay. Um, I've got, I'm going to go through some some stuff in. Uh, really interesting confirmation that uh, Jeremy Irons and Sienna Miller have joined the cast of Ben Wheatley's High Rise, which is based on the J.G. Ballard novel, which is fantastic. Uh, Tom Hiddleston was announced as a star some some time ago. Going to be shooting an Ireland, Nicola Woods, Helen. Really? Yeah, going to be shooting in Bangor, Northern Ireland. Hooray! Yeah, where I spent many a summer holiday. Is it slightly worrying that the only time big productions sometimes come to Northern Ireland is to, to when they're trying to portray death and despair? We obviously had Rihanna come to shoot her music video where the chorus <laughs> goes, we find love in a hopeless place. And now we have... Well, you know, yes, with the farmer telling him to get out of his field. Get out of your field. With your woman and your, your, your boobies out and stuff. I don't like it. With your woman out. <laughs> get out. Get out of my field. Right, um... No, I spoke to Ben Wheatley the other day, actually, about this, and he said that they chose uh, Northern Ireland, they chose Bangor, partially because the architecture is still rooted in the 70s, which is when, <laughs> which is when the film takes place. Uh, so that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, it's, it's going it's to be fun. It's a fantastic novel. If you, it's very short as well. Yeah, you can pick it up. Uh, and, and it's paper. a fantastic novel. It's, so and it's really short as well. No, no, no. Okay, some, people, some people, honestly, if they hear it's like a thousand-page behemoth, they might get put off. But this is like, it comes in under 200 pages, bang for your buck it's really really good uh, check it out and uh, yeah they're going to be um, Jeremy Irons going to be playing the the, uh, the architect of this building that takes place in this high rise building and the high rise in some way affects all the residents who basically regress and become feral like the raid basically it is a bit like the raid uh, but a much more cerebral version of the raid there's a lot of violence and sex and Els- you know, and Alsatians being cooked that sort of thing so um, I think Ben Whitley's perfect for this it's going to be very very interesting indeed uh, I also what's he got against dogs well he doesn't have anything against dogs per se it's in the source material yeah I get it although maybe that's why he liked it in the first place <laughs> ah, kill a dog what is the source material for boiling a dog is it tomatoes prickled <laughs> onions <laughs> Oh, this 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 boiled dog is a wonderful thing. Um, More pepper, <laughs> lovely pepper. Uh, yeah, 
So we we happy with that? Is it good? We all yeah. happy with that? Yeah, I'm just yes. excited about that film all round. Yeah. Very excited. Very excited. Good indeed. stuff. Edgar Ramirez, uh, who you like, Helen? I do. You find yep. him an attractive man. He is an attractive man. Uh, is set to to be the new Bodhi. He's replacing Jerry Butler in the Point Break remake, which has also been given a date. It's coming out on the um, the, the the day that. Satan <laughs> claims all our souls. It's uh, of June next year. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Satan yeah. Day next year. It comes out at 6am on the 6th of June. Yeah, so that's interesting. It is. I mean, listen, we're on record as thinking that this whole remake is not of the best idea. We are. I know, but why have we suddenly, why has everyone, not just us, but why has the internet suddenly claimed Point Break as the film that is sacrosanct, <laughs> that, that should not be touched? Well, it's, it's Point Break, for God's sake. Yes, Chris. It, absolutely, it's Point Break, which is why it's so good. I mean, when else have I, you seen... When good point, else, Helen. When else have you seen someone fire a gun into the air and say, ah, with I as much conviction of, as I can't that. think of any other movie in which has happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, good point. So, I don't know. Anyway, I yeah, if we're going to remake it... I guess he's a pretty good choice. He can do that sort of mysterious, charismatic, not very many words kind mm. of a thing quite well. And he's enough of a change from Patrick Swayze that we're not going to, you know, be drawing comparisons mm. more than once a second. Mm. So I he's very good. good, isn't he? Is he in a Bourne film? Yes. And yeah. Carlos, the film about Carlos. That's right. <laughs> the yes. Jackal, yes. Um, which is very good if 17 hours long. Um, and there wasn't a talk of them doing a film about the Chilean miners and he was going to be one of those there is a Chilean there is a Chilean miner yeah. is that happening it's the 33 we were on set in, in Chile in fact Holy Magoli yeah, really Banderas is in it yeah just one one uh, last story for me then uh, is this news that Catherine Bigelow and Tom Hardy are set the team up on a film called True American uh, which is a true story uh, about a self-styled American terrorist called Mark Stroman who uh, who shot a Bangladesh Air Force officer who was working in the States uh, just a few days after 9-11 and uh, the guy didn't die Stroman went to prison the Bangladeshi uh, Air Force officer raced in Buyan mm. uh, recovered from his injuries and then forgave his attacker uh, forgave his would-be wow. killer so sounds like there's a lot here a lot of a lot of meat on the bone so it could be could be good yeah definitely does this mean uh, the her Colombian uh, drug m- movies on the back burner do we think there was talk say. of there was talk of her um, doing this big kind of set on the border of I think Colombia and Peru and, and did delving into all of that kind of stuff it seemed, it sounds like a bit of a departure for Bigelow yeah potentially a bit more sort of triple frontier triple that, frontier I was yeah. thinking of yeah with, uh, with uh, Tom Hanks attached yeah exactly as well that's uh, quite intriguing I don't know I don't know what the situation was mm. like, is with that one but it's uh, she, certainly very she's one of these she's got the patronage of um, Megan Ellison hasn't she I think and she Anna has. so yeah. it's good to see so point break Absolutely, has fallen into other hands, and she's off doing interesting stuff, which is great. Yeah, talk about evolution of uh, filmmakers, mm. amazing. And uh, ending the movie news roundup on a very sad note. Uh, there were two very very sad deaths in uh, in film circles this week. Uh, the wonderfully gifted uh, iconoclastic artist H.R. Giger died, age seventy four, following a fall in his home uh, in Switzerland. He is, of course, the man who who made Alien. Alien, uh, tremendous. Tremendous loss. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the thing is, I mean, I think for film fans, that's his work first and foremost. I mean, in, in the art world, he's hugely respected for everything else that he's done as well. Um, but uh, but it's such an incredible design, and it's been one that's been so copied and so imitated and so influential since on everything. You know, not just sort of creatures, but just on 
on everything in film design. I don't think there's been a sci-fi film since that hasn't been in some way touched by by the alien, if you will. Uh, and Giger was, of course, he was a, a, a difficult, uh, at times a dangerous talent as well. Uh, rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. His behaviour on set of Alien was very interesting. He was dubbed Count Dracula by the by the crew. You, you talk about people who have lasting impact on movies and... Uh, yeah, he certainly had one, uh, and he will be sorely missed. And the uh, the other person who passed away tragically this week at the age of just 36, and in circumstances which are truly tragic, was the director of Searching for Sugarman, Malik Benjaloo. I met um, Malik actually mm. for the when they were coming around, and he was he was paired up with um, Rodriguez himself, the star of Searching for Sugarman, yeah, the junket for that film, which obviously then went on to win uh, many awards and become well loved I guess and, and remain so and I yeah I really incredibly sad news it's very young and we don't obviously know the details of what happened but um, certainly seemed like a man who'd I think he'd come out of um, he was Swedish he'd come out of uh, making television documentaries and, and, and clearly had great talent in in that form and maybe seemed like one of those guys that might go on to make feature films as well so um, really sad Mm. And if anybody out there hasn't seen Searching for Sugar Man, really do seek it out. It's an absolutely wonderful, wonderful well, film. Well, I'll be honest, it's a very it's a very moving story itself, Searching for Sugar Man, and very sad in some ways. And I think it'll be even, obviously, even more tinged with pathos now. Um, might be quite an emotional watch, I'd imagine. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, H.R. Giger, who died at age 74, and Malik Benjaloo, who died aged 36. Okay, let's head now into our uh, second interview. Gareth Edwards burst on the scene in spectacular fashion in 2010 with his astonishing low-budget, lo-fi, sci-fi debut, Monsters. Try saying that when you're drunk. Uh, Warner Brothers saw the potential immediately and snapped him up for their mega-budget remake of Godzilla, a character Edwards had loved since he was knee-high to a Mothra. And the fruits of his labours stomps all over cinemas everywhere this week, so we sent Helen and Ali along to hear him roar. Enjoy. Just before you listen, uh, there was a slight audio snafu in the first couple of minutes. So this one just starts. It just starts with a question. We're talking about Ken Watanabe, who is uh, one of the scientists in the creature feature. To, to use one of your phrases, Chris, enjoy. Ken Watanabe. Was that a, a sort of a conscious thing? Was he your kind of Raymond Burr? He's kind of the way in for Japanese audiences in the way that Raymond Burr was the way in for American audiences back in the day. Yeah, but I think if I'm being honest, he's probably more of a Francois Truffaut <laughs> from Close Encounters. I think I knew we, I wanted to have a Japanese character at the heart of the film throughout the whole movie. You know, obviously with you know a, a lot of potential exposition dialogue, you, you, we we also wanted to have not a translator like in Close Encounters, but like a, a right hand man. And uh, we ended up uh, Sally Hawkins ended up playing the man. She had a sex change just for the role. She did that really well. It, I know. She was spot on. Um, she's a natural. She does English woman really well. I know. Just well done. It's, and you'd never know she was from Brooklyn, would you? <laughs> Until you see that Woody Allen movie. Kind of give it away. I, I, I want to also ask, you know, talking about your PowerPoint presentation that you gave, was there a page in the PowerPoint presentation when you were pitching the film before it was greenlit that said, this is how it's going to compare to the 1998 film? Was, was there a section... Did you in any way, when you were coming up with a film, put it in comparison to that one? I think there was one page when we... I basically did different pages about... Um, I've never actually spoke about this. These are the first people I've ever told this to. But there was different pages about the different Godzillas through the years. And they had very clever titles, I thought. Like one was uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces. It had all the different Toho Godzillas. I thought that was a very smart yeah. like, title for a page. I uh, kept myself entertained. <laughs> and then there was one that was... Um, that um, was the Sony Godzilla, 
and and talked about why the issues and actually you know what to be fair to that film i think it's a good design for a monster i think it's a good cool looking monster it's just the problem is you know from everyone's point of view is it's not godzilla the thing is about that film is that people kind of disregard it but it did give us deeper underground by jamiroquai were you ever tempted to put any of that kind of music in obviously you weren't but I'm more of a Led Zeppelin fan, so I probably would have gone with the uh, Puff Daddy. Yeah, the Robert This is where you and I differ. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of with him on that one. Oh, Although, really? I always thought Puff Daddy was the wrong choice for the rap. I thought it should have been like Method Man or somebody with a bit like more of a gravelly kind of voice. But they had, that was a film that had that one um, like pop hit tie-in was not enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, I thought those, that was an era of like Top Gun you know what I mean? When you had more than one, you know, track. Like, it was quite greedy mm. to have Puff Daddy, you know, and Jamiroquai. Was there a sense, Helen thought of this, of a kind of a Chewbacca way of dealing with Godzilla? Were you saying, at this point, Godzilla's saying this? Because in, in the original Star Wars, Chewbacca actually had lines in English in the script. And then they came up with signs to kind of represent that. And I felt, certainly watching the film... Like any time, especially during fight scenes, I felt I knew exactly what he was saying. It was usually trash talk. It, he he talks like a wrestler in my head. Down. Yeah, that kind of thing. But was was there an element of that in the script when you were kind of putting his kind of movements together and his roars together? Uh, in a nutshell, no. <laughs> Interesting. But, but it's funnier to say yes. You're spot on. Um, what, what sort of thing would he say? If that was in any way accurate. Actually, you know what? In the film, because you know you have to describe all these abstract sounds. And with the sound designer, Eric, I kept... There was one particular sound I kept calling tontons. And I was like, can we move the tontons? Can we just have the tontons a bit louder? You know, like from Empire Strikes Back? You know, the kind of... Whatever that is. I didn't know. I thought he had just stolen them from Empire Strikes Back. And then I found out later that, that they weren't even animals. There's a sound of... Um, I don't want to ruin it, but it's a very everyday object being uh, manipulated to make it sound like an animal. But it's when Godzilla is in pain. Um, it's a very like traumatic sound. And I thought it was a donkey or something. You know, like when donkeys scream. You've got that album, right? Donkey scream, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Screaming donkeys, the first volume is absolutely crazy. It went downhill after volume three. Yeah, too right. Going back to the music thing, were you ever tempted to bring in Blue Oyster Cult's Godzilla over the credits? Um... No, but I was in a I was in a disco, disco. I was in a in a bar. <laughs> was this nineteen ninety eight? Yeah, disco. Yeah. I went out to a discotheque with my friends, and uh, I remember being in a bar. And it's when I just got the job, and I and I told one friend that I was going to be doing this movie, and we went out to celebrate. And uh, well, he wasn't celebrating; he was kind of taking the piss out of me, like all your friends do. But we went out, and uh, that song came on, and I didn't know it. Like, no way. I had never heard it before. And I was, and we were all looking at each other confused. Like, I went up to the guy and I was like, what's this song? And he explained it and he showed me the album cover and everything. And I had no idea about it. But ever since, wow. I'm obviously overly familiar with it now. It's, uh, it should be your personal theme tune at this point. Surely. It's on my phone. When my phone rings, that's what plays. Are you kidding me? Yes, that I'm kidding you. That makes me so happy if that were true. <laughs> that would make me so happy. Going back to people taking the mick, perhaps, there's been some internet scuttlebutt that Japanese people, that amorphous group of a wide variety of different folk from different I parts. don't think you can sum them up a whole yeah, nation you, you can't just go sentence. It takes at least two. Exactly. You can't go Japanese people. It's just yeah. impossible. But anyway, the internet did. Uh, and they were saying Japanese people think that Godzilla's too bulky. He's been eating too many lard lad donuts. 
What is your reaction to that sort of rubbish? The thing I worry about the most is I know that Godzilla reads these forums. Ah, shit. And he has an image complex as it is. And I actually think there's ulterior motives behind this. Because if you get him angry, like he really gets angry and he starts, he'll come and find you and he'll smash up your city. And I think the Japanese are just jealous (laughs) that that, that San Francisco is going to get it in this movie. And they're doing all they can to provoke him and get it back to Tokyo. This is their version of Godzuki's call to yeah. bring Godzilla over to them. They call him fat. I think I'm, we're hitting on a sequel here. <laughs> <laughs> I have another size question. Um, the marketing campaign has been amazing for this, and I, I don't want to bore everybody talking about mar- marketing campaigns, but there was one poster where Godzilla's towering above the skyscrapers of San Francisco, um, and in particular one that's, I think, given the measurements you gave us, three times as tall as he is yeah so did you know did you kind of see that and and sort of send somebody an email going yeah this is great but i i you you have that thought i had that thought for half a second and then i remembered every other movie poster i've ever seen (laughs) where people's heads are bigger than skylines Mm -hmm. and uh you know bodies are cut off out of frame or faded into the background and i think posters are kind of you know symbolic of the movie and i know what you mean but uh it'd be It'd actually be quite a boring film. We did do tests of the size of Godzilla and we had like a, you know, a tall, a grande and a venti Godzilla. And the venti just looked like just stupid. It was just omnipresent. You couldn't hide him. It it was kind of, there was no fun in that Mm. kind of version. And so uh, we got him down to about the the same height as, as a skyscraper. Which of the other big five? Is your favourite? The big five being? Being Godzilla, Mothra. Okay. Rodan, Ghidorah. Yeah. <laughs> and... All the big names, you know. Uh, of Toho's finest. They've all got something about them. I think... <sighs> like a proud parent. <laughs> I'd say Ghidorah's probably one of the most interesting because you get three for the price of one. And no arms, <laughs> is that right? He has wings, but I don't know how they support him. Magic. A wizard did it, probably. <laughs> I don't I don't want to start a, uh, a war with Japan, but um, Ghidorah's a little bit fat as well, you know. <laughs> and if you enjoyed that interview and if you enjoy Godzilla if 300 foot fire breathing lizards are your thing you'll be delighted to know that there's a Godzilla spoiler special podcast coming on Monday which is May the 19th there we go Uh, featuring Mr. Edwards spilling beanzillas everywhere Uh, so that's on Monday but is Godzilla worth your time this weekend in preparation for the podcast. Or you could just see it and not listen to the podcast. It's highly up to you. I'm really excited about this bit because I haven't seen it and you three guys have seen it and I really want to know whether I should go and pay for it at cinema. So, yes, hit me, should. guys. It, it's short order, you should. Yes. Oh. Well, okay, let's move on now to the two faces <laughs> of January. Uh, let's, let's, let's get into the... Uh, let's, let's dig further into Gohira. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, this is, this is as you can kind of tell from, from a lot of the trailers, from everything that's gone before, this is the Godzilla film that, that really tries to treat it seriously, takes the monster seriously, kind of returns it to its, its roots in a way in that, it, you know, it's not all set in Japan, but it very much has the same kind of feel of this is a monster feature as natural disaster. This is not just a knockabout kind of, you know, big wrestler movie. This is, this is really quite <laughs> kind of serious stuff in many ways. It starts off kind of setting up that real world context with uh, a disaster at a nuclear facility, which is where Brian Cranston's character Joe Brody works with his wife, played by Juliette Binoche. Um, and, and, you know, tragedy ensues. The, the entire town is, is, uh, is evacuated as a result of this. 
And then we kind of cut to 15 years later um, and his growing up son, now played by Aaron Taylor-Johnson, is called uh, because his father has been arrested trying to get into this now restricted area, this irradiated area where they used to live, um, trying to find out what happened. He's still kind of obsessed with the tragedy. Um, and what he finds out is that his old man isn't so crazy after all and there is something that's being kind of hidden from people there. Mm. Of course, within a matter of a couple of days, it becomes clear to the entire world uh, that something was being hidden and indeed what that something is, and it is very big and very, very destructive indeed. Mm. But it is not Godzilla. No, it is not. It is another monster mm-hmm. uh, and it is the existence and the presence of this other monster that calls Godzilla back into action. Up from the depths. Yes. So the idea in this is that he's a sort of a prehistoric apex predator who, you know, is, is, I guess, awoken by our use of technology and by the modern era. Yes. And you may have heard, with the name Joe Brody there, that there's a Jaws influence. And I think that is most keenly felt in the way that the monster mash, the real action, comes towards the end of the film. I think that is something you might have expected if you'd watched Monsters, which is suspenseful teases its audience with the shots you know the money shots as they call them so the last half hour is kind of what you're expecting big fight right but before then it's a how can i put this it's a series of set pieces that conjoined with expositional dialogue that explain in more detail the reason why Godzilla has has woken and these other things and 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 radiation and and the army are involved and the navy are involved and aaron taylor johnson goes from this place to this place to this place maybe you can tell by the tone of my voice the portion before this massive fight at the end is logical sensible you totally buy it but it's not necessarily as engaging as you would like it to be this isn't to say that it isn't enjoyable and it isn't to say that you're looking at your watch it's just that i would have liked maybe a little bit more personality and color to this it's perhaps a smidge dourer than i was expecting can i ask this how how is it sort of edited so that you have what where Godzilla is and what he's doing and, and the rest of the drama playing Well, Godzilla um, has not a lot of screen time in this movie. So where is he? Roughly the same amount of screen time as Judy Dench had in Shakespeare in Love. But she won an Oscar. That's so not true. It's pretty much true. <laughs> it's a lot more than that. Well, well, the reason why true. Judy won that is because she tore down the globe and started stomping around most of... <laughs> It's, it's true. Southwark. She ate Southwark. Yeah. Mm. She bit Tom Stoppard in half. It was it was awful. It was well done. Blood everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it was well done. Yeah, Godzilla's actually not in this movie that much. The 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 enemy he fights gets a lot more screen time, and then he comes in as a sort of rampage and savior, and he gets a lot of stuff towards the end. Uh, but this focuses on the humans, and this is where I think the pro- the movie has problems in that the humans are dull as dishwater, and uh, and you don't root for them. And there's a lot of comparisons to Jaws, and a lot of people make comparisons to Jaws and. Ali, you yourself just said that. One of the things about Jaws has going for it is that, yeah, hides a shark, hides a shark, hides a shark. Great. But it makes the human characters compelling enough so that you want to spend 45 minutes with them on the orca at the end of the at the end of the movie and you want to hear Robert Shaw's Indianapolis speech. Uh, and you want to, you, you almost, it's like at the end of that movie, the shark's almost an irrelevance. I just want to spend time with Brody Quinton Hooper. I do not want to spend time with this Brody. This Brody is a... This is the young plank. The young Brody. This the young is, Brody, yeah. yeah uh, Brian Cranston's very, very good, and uh, the film doesn't focus on him, and I think that's a big mistake. But that said, when this delivers spectacle and action, it is sensational. And uh, I saw Monsters a few years ago with, along with everyone else. I fell in love with that movie. I thought Gareth Edwards, here's a, an unbelievable talent. I just went and be snapped up by Hollywood. And, and definitely, there are huge flashes of that in this movie. There's a, a, a Hawaii airport sequence, which is 
just astonishing. Mm. Spielbergian in, the, in its uh, control of build-up, suspense, and ultimately scale and revelation. There's a, there's a great sequence on a bridge uh, with uh, Aaron Taylor-Johnson and, uh, and one of... The, with Aaron Taylor-Johnson and, uh, you know, a creature that's not Godzilla, which is phenomenal. Yeah. And, and the, the, and the final... Very, very creepy, very, very scary. And there's a great showdown near the end. Um, uh, Godzilla and Jums are stomping all over... It's a great and the showdown in San Francisco. Although for me, it did teeter on Man of Steel destruction porn monotony at times, as cities are being leveled or as one city is being leveled in particular. Still amazing. There's some phenomenal moments in that, and you can just see that there's a really world class filmmaker just waiting to get out. They just needed, I think, to get the characters right to make the human characters as compelling as the big lizardy guy. You know that theory, not very good theory, I'm not sure if theory is the right word, but you know that theory I have of you can tell when you're watching a film when the director's on, when the director's like, okay, I'm on this, yeah, let's do it. The bits you see in the trailer where they're jumping, the parachuters Mm. are jumping out of the plane with the red smoke, beautiful. Uh, There's uh, another bit where um, the Hawaii stuff, beautiful. There's, There's a bit where you see Godzilla's roar uh, makes the makes Chinese lanterns shake in the darkness. These red lanterns. It's just beautiful shots. But as a whole, I think some people may end up feeling impressed, but maybe mm. not um, that engaged. I don't think. I mean, I I don't want to get people to go away with the impression though that that Gareth Edwards is a sort of a technical director in the in the way that some people are. And you know, not naming names, but there are some people in Hollywood who are only interested in the effects stuff. True. And I don't think that's the case here. No, and nor was the case with Monsters. No, absolutely not. That was very much a human story. I think he's tried to tell a human story here, and I think there are moments where he is hugely, hugely successful, especially in that that early stuff um, with Cranston and his wife in particular. Um, for me, I'll be honest, the, the main problem was that it was... Uh, Aaron Taylor-Johnson's an actor I've liked in other things, but I just find him a real blank here. And I think whether it's in the writing or in the performance, it's that character that's really the void that we're we're feeling the lack of in this film. I think if he was a really compelling character, just that one guy could make a difference. God, that sounds like a superhero film. (laughs) (laughs) One man could make a difference. And I honestly, but I think if, if he had been just a little bit stronger as a character, then I think we'd all be going away extremely happy indeed. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to go and watch this movie at the cinema. Good. You should. Very good choice. You should. It's a definitely, I've said this before, but it's definitely a Dolby Atmos, best speakers, best screen, IMAX job. It really, really is. You will get chills. Who wants to come with me? Anyone out there want to come with me? Let me know. Absolutely. Why not? Um, Anytime, anyplace, anywhere, Phil, you know that. Yeah, just very, very quickly about Godzilla. We're giving it three stars which is a recommendation. It's one of those movies, it's, it's a strange one. I think monster movie fans, I'm not a huge monster movie fan, will absolutely love it. There are some people who are raving about this film, uh, calling it the best Godzilla ever. I just wish I had more of a sense of fun. I just lament somewhat what I think is the Chris Nolanization of blockbusters over the last few years where everything has to be super serious and super intense and super, super dour and fun is to be frowned and stomped upon. Uh, and I think this movie does fall in that trap a little bit. But in terms of spectacle and suspense, there are five... Five or six scenes that are just world class. Okay, so three stars for Godzilla, which, as we said, is a recommendation. Let's move on now to the two faces of January. Philip? Yes. I watched this movie and I thoroughly enjoyed it, I have to say. It was, it, it feels like a movie out of time. I think we mentioned in the podcast talking to the director, Hossein Amini, who is the screenwriter of, Oscar nominated screenwriter of uh, The Wings of a Dove, uh, the Henry James novel adaptation, and Drive, the uh, Walter. Salas mm. 
uh, adaptation. Uh, James Salas, even, I apologise. Um, and here he is with his first feature um, directorial gig from his own script, adapted from Patricia Highsmith's novel. And there's something really cinematic about Patricia Highsmith's books, I think, and, and hence they've made great movies down the years. Strangers, Strangers on a Train, The Hitchcock, um, obviously uh, the two... Uh, Ripley books, Talented Mr. Ripley, Anthony Minghella, and Plein Soleil, the René Clément French one with um, Alain Delon. With Alain Delon, of course, um, which is probably the main kind of stylistic touch point for this film. Uh, it's set in 1962. It starts out in Athens. It's beautifully shot uh, by Marcel Ziskind, who's the DP for Michael Winterbottom. This is a much more formal, painterly kind of approach. It has beautiful location work. It's got Viggo Mortensen and Kirsten Dunst as a couple who we discover are compromised by. Some kind of shady mad many exploits back in the US. He turns out to have done some double dealing of a financial uh, nature and he's been chased basically by a private investigator, which leads us into a scenario in which he meets um, Oscar Isaac's character, Rydell, who is a very charismatic, sexy American with a shady background. Um, who's out in Athens just basically picking pockets and doing some sort of light-fingered con-man work. Um, so they're basically the, the two sides of the Janus equation. If there's a father and son dynamic and there's two sides. There's basically an idea that maybe Isaac and Viggo Mortensen's character are linked quite closely in ways that they probably wouldn't want to admit to. Um, but there's just so many things about this film that make it feel like a throwback. The great costume design, the the kind of um, the colour palette, the, the location work, a lot of stuff that you don't see. Very little CG uh, in this one and um, beautifully played by the three the three leads. Oscar Isaac obviously having a moment um, <laughs> right now and Viggo Mortensen having kind of a career-long moment, I would say. And Kirsten Dunst's character is fleshed out from the book and made more kind of mature and engaging by Amini who's a very talented writer and on this basis director and we gave it four stars cool fantastic uh, four stars for Two Faces of January which I think makes it the best film out this week by my reckoning uh, there's another Elizabeth Olsen vehicle out this week as well it's uh, In Secret Helen what could you tell us about that yeah this is an adaptation of the Emile Zola novel uh, Therese Racan and it stars Elizabeth Olsen again uh, she's uh, she is the titular Therese. Um, she's trapped in a loveless marriage, aren't we all? Um, to her uh, rather useless cousin Camille, who's played by Tom Felton of Harry Potter fame. Um, sorry, you're not trapped in a loveless marriage, Chris. I didn't mean to suggest otherwise. Anyway. You're not trapped. Just just metaphorically, Chris. <laughs> metaphorically. Um, so she is obviously unhappy about this and she falls into an affair with uh, uh, his old friend, uh, Laurent, who is played by in his second appearance of the week, Oscar Isaac, uh, which obviously you know doesn't go so well, given that this is a French novel and mel- melodrama. So that's basically the setup. Incredible supporting cast: Shirley Henderson's in there, Mackenzie Crook, Jessica Lang is fabulous. She's the kind of overbearing uh, mother of Camille, who's kind of trying to push everyone where she wants them. But it's a little bit maybe he- heavy on the melodrama and a little bit maybe kind of low on. I don't know, freshness or kind of character moments, I, I guess maybe. It, it all feels a little bit too heavy and I think it could have been a bit lightened. So anyway, we gave it three, which is a recommendation. Um, and if you are you know, if you have to read the novel for school and you can't quite be bothered, this might be a decent uh, substitution. Don't tell your teacher I said that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it is, it's, it's good, but not great. So if you love period uh, adaptations starring Oscar Isaac, yeah. this week is just... Oh, you're spoiled for choice this week. Get amongst it. And Godzilla. Yeah. 
And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be X-rated. Not for nudity or sexual swear words, I'm sad to say, but because we'll be talking to X-Men Days of Future Pasts, Ian McKellen and Hugh Jackman. In fact, Helen spoke to Jackman all in her alone. You okay? I'm, I'm okay. You all right? You seem to be coming over a little faint. A little bit. A little bit. Uh, uh, yeah, do you want him to read a story to you? That would Jackman? be okay. I'll be okay. Sure. All right. Uh, all of that, of course, is ahead of our brilliant X-Men Days of Future Past spoiler special podcast, which will street, as you kids say, on Monday, May 26th, just after the film opens, uh, which features top-level blabbage from writer-producer Simon Kinberg. So don't forget to check that one out. And, of course, Monday, May 19th, this Monday, is the Godzilla spoiler special podcast with Gareth Edwards and us nattering on forever. Tell your friends. Uh, lots of people are finding the spoiler specials for the first time on Twitter. It's very encouraging. Go tell them. Go tell uh, tell all your friends. Tell all your friends, and also don't forget make friends and then tell them about it. You can still subscribe to Empire for eighteen quid. That has been such a popular thing. Thanks for being part of it. It's been extended for a month, so you can go and get it. Go and get eighteen quid, twelve issues. Great. Where'd they find that? They'd find it on the website. It's all over the website. Go to emporeonline.com and it'll be on the homepage. Go check it out. So as well as the £18 deal for all new UK subscribers, I'm aware there are lots of other people who don't live in the UK who'd love to subscribe. And so we've sorted out a little voucher for people who don't live in the UK and still want to subscribe. And that is you. If you're listening, that is you. So what you need to do is when you go to the website, emporeonline.com, and you click on the subscribe button, when you eventually go through to pay for your order and you're from the overseas, type in this voucher code, which is EPODCAST, capital letter E, capital letter P-O-D-C-A-S-T, all in caps, and that will take 10% off the price of your order. Please do take us up on the offer. Just give it a try. Let us know what you think. And um, obviously, you know, thanks for listening. Great. Until then, it is goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Oh, I'm Chris. off to I'm off to work in this forest a little bit, Helen. I, I don't know why I have such a problem with it. See you next week, guys. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>